Hello and welcome back to the Control-Alt-Delete podcast. This is a replay of an old episode with the brilliant Joe Lysett. This was first recorded in 2017 at the Hodder and Stoughton offices in London, which is the publisher that Joe and I both share for our books. This was when his hilarious book, Parsnips Buttered, first came out. We chatted about his book and his career to date. And since this interview aired four years ago, it's been so amazing watching his career go from strength to strength and also watching all of his pranks on Twitter and Instagram. In 2018, he hit the road with his biggest tour to date, which was called I'm About to Lose Control and I Think Joe Likes It, where he performed over 90 shows. And in 2019, he became the new host of the BBC Two programme The Great British Sewing Bee, and he hosted his own comedy consumer affairs show, Joe Likes It's Got Your Back, on Channel 4, which I loved watching. He has also been confirmed as the new host of Channel 4's Travel Man, which I can't wait to watch. I hope you enjoyed this little walk down memory lane, and here is the episode. Basically, I write a list of like dream guests. I kind of put you down as like I, you're, I think you're going to be a hard one. I should have played hard to get. That's very kind of you. I was just like, I, I hope one day I can interview you, and here I am. How hard was I to get? I literally screamed at your publicist, <laughs> saying, um, "I love him." Like, Aww. she was like, "You need to tone that down if you do meet him." Um, I literally, <laughs> no, I'm turn obsessed. It up. Like, if I'm ever feeling down in the dumps, I type my name into YouTube. I discovered you kind of through the my dad wrote a porno. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But everyone was like, you're crazy. How have you not heard Joe's stuff before? Well, not crazy. Um, I I find it very difficult to get a handle on um, my level of fame because I'm in this sort of weird place in my career where, like, I'm not that well known, but people that sort of know me and like me sort of are, are being very kind publicly about me. I'm not that niche but i'm not that popular either so i get a real i have no idea how to sort of get a handle on um yeah how how well known i am but there's lots of nice yeah people are very nice about my stuff which is good people that come up to me these days generally say that they like me on instagram either the parking fine thing or my instagram you've really got a niche that you've got if you like one of your sketches you'll like them all i feel because like a lot of your material is is based on how great you are on emails and <laughs> on the internet and trolling. Yeah, there, yeah, I've got a lot. Well, this thing, I'm, uh, uh, when coming to write this, I'm doing a new show. I was sort of trying to think, like, can I just keep doing that? Because that's what I really like doing. But, like, it's can I? how long can I keep just reading out emails that I've written to people and, and get away with, like, they say, oh, here's a funny tweet I did it in 2015 or whatever. But people love it. It seems to really uh, enjoy it, and I love it as well. Uh, like I love doing it and it comes relatively naturally to me to just be a bit of an idiot on social media so yeah I do still keep doing quite a lot of it and do keep writing about it in stand up but I'm sure at some point it'll well there'll be a new thing won't there it'll be like internet too because I was thinking I wonder from your point of view how it must feel to kind of go viral in that sense Um, because some of your I mean all of them have so many views online and I wondered if that as to the pressure or whether it's just like this is working and this is my thing bit of both really it's weird the going viral thing because it's not at least in my experience it's not as um uh, kind of overnight uh as mm. people kind of make it out to be 
I think because I, I I went viral with something that was sort of comedic rather than like outrageous or whatever. So it wasn't like people banging on my door asking for a quote or whatever. It was just like, oh yeah, that was fun. And um, it it sort of passed me by a little bit when it was happening. Somebody tweeted me when the the parking fine thing first started sort of rolling, saying you've gone viral on Facebook, and I was couldn't find the clip anywhere. So I was like, well, obviously I haven't, or um, I don't really know what that means. But then, yeah, the amount of times people now say to me that I'm the parking fine guy, which I'm more than happy to be, <laughs> I'm happy to carry that that torch. Um, and yeah, I suppose it then rolls on. So the net, then when you put other similar stuff out, I know that the um, clip that from Live at the Apollo, and it's also a chapter in the book about um, trolling the office mm. and having the fox called Samantha Peterson and all oh, that. I love that. Um, that. That's people really enjoy that as well. I think I think that one did quite well. But yeah, it's um, it's a I, I I'm very grateful to the fact that the internet has sort of given me a real boost because I think. In some ways, what I do is quite niche. And without the internet, I think if it just went out on telly in one go, people would be like, oh, he's the guy that does the letters. But I think the fact that they've been clipped up and put out there, which probably wouldn't have happened without the internet, is really um, great. I I think that's so interesting because from, like, comedians marketing themselves, for example, around Edinburgh Fringe and things like that, I know a lot of people who are like, I don't want to give my jokes out for free, like on mm. Twitter, for example. But at the same time, you kind of need to put a little bit out there to get people to come to the shows. Well, that that's the thing is like you do have to hold some stuff back. And often it's like stuff that you're really proud of, but you know that you can't um, do it like on the, the internet or on, on your social media channels because it will spoil the show for people. So sometimes it's quite frustrating because like, I know this will get loads of retweets, but I can't do it. Um, but I also, I don't think people care that much. I think like people who are like Uber fans and will watch everything that you put out or sort of follow everything, they will still enjoy hearing it in a live environment or me embellishing around it in a live environment. And I also learned from the weirdest place, but well, not necessarily the weirdest place, but Giles Brandreth, you know, the um, raconteur and um, ex-Tory MP. I've oh, done yeah. a few bits and bobs with him on um, Radio 4 normally. And he's always so good, like always so funny and everyone like loves him and I love him and he's always been really positive about me. But whenever um, I listen to him on the radio or whatever, I think, oh, this sounds familiar. And then I'll remember that that's an anecdote that he's said somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so there are, he kind of repeats his material um, in different places, but he gets away with it and there's no... Um, it's just a joy to hear him do it. So I, I've sort of taken a leaf out of his book in not being so precious these days about have I said something before or whatever because there's only so many funny things that happen in one person's mm. life that, <laughs> and I try and find them as much as possible. That's um, so true. I went to see um, Mick, Mickey Flanagan. Yes. And I would, have been, I would have been like a bit gutted if he hadn't done some of the stuff yeah. that he's famous for. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, so true. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, he. I think his sort of viral thing was the uh, the Double lads busy. outside the. Oh yeah, the um, out out out. But then also the, the uh, I think he did it Royal Variety as well. The um, lads outside the chicken shop with that dragon oh, there. Yeah. I mean, he's just so good, Mickey Flanagan. His tour dates are insane. When you look at his tour, it's like ten nights at 
Wembley. Ten nights at the O2. Like, it's just, yeah. Well, quite speaking right, of Amy, tours, what? you're on a massive tour uh, next year. Uh, yeah. Yes, I am. Thank <laughs> you for mentioning um, it. How does it feel to to know that most of next year you are touring? It's weird. Like, you've got... Because mo- most of my friends are in, like proper jobs and they know that like next year i've got this amount of holiday i'll be off at this point but i could probably tell you that you know next may on a thursday i'll be in the office doing this and i don't normally get that like far in advance i don't i couldn't tell you what i'd be doing normally beyond maybe three months apart from a few things here and there and so yeah to basically have the year planned out to say you'll be here on that night and you have to make them laugh and then that's you know that's that's it it's sort of it's kind of brilliant but it's also sort of weirdly like um it's terrifying really because the show's not finished yet it's definitely on its way but it's not you want to keep it topical so you have to keep writing up until you keep writing it while you're on tour really but up until the last minute you want to keep writing it so it's sort of you're putting all these tickets on sale going like one, I hope people will buy it. And then two, I hope I've got something to say to them when they then turn up, um, which I will. I'm pleased by tickets. But um, <laughs> but it is a really, uh, it's a surreal experience, definitely, because I'm not used to having that much planned ahead. Does it get easier every performance? Like now you've done it for... for... Uh, yes and no. Like uh, you get more... Uh, I've started, you might have seen if uh, you follow me on Instagram, I've started doing little paintings. And it's weird how, because I've, I've painted bits and bobs before, but I've never really sort of sat down and like properly had a go at it. And when you're in the initial stages of a new kind of creative endeavour, you learn very quickly certain things. So you can, it's like that kind of graph where it's sort of, you, you learn something very like you, you get loads of skills very quickly and then it's about finessing those skills and with stand-up i remember the first few gigs just you just learn super quick like oh if i do this it's things like um uh, you often see new stand-ups who are having a bad gig say oh this isn't going very well and it's like no like a, it's a big no-no to do that because then you put the seed of the idea and people some people might have just been going like oh i thought it was meant to be like not that laugh heavy and then when somebody says it's not going well you lose confidence in them and then it gets awkward and all of that and there's little tricks like that you just learn as you sort of go along and so this first few months of stand-up or first 100 gigs or whatever it's just learning all that stuff and then you get to the stage I'm at which is 10 years in and I've done thousands of gigs now and it's about kind of finessing the delivery of certain bits and narrative arc and all of the stuff that's actually really hard but actually that makes a show go from quite good to really good um it's the stuff that i yeah i I struggle with but i'm getting better at slowly but yeah it you some have sometimes have gigs and you go ah i have no idea what i'm doing and i didn't i didn't know what to do in that situation there i find it's so impressive i find it so like impressive the um all of that work that goes into something that looks so easy not at you but just in general being like oh yeah i could do that well that's uh, what i thought when i first started doing stand-up i was watching stand-up and like, oh i could do better than this couldn't absolutely couldn't definitely the first few years so this is not i got a clue what i was doing it is yeah it's like anything you just have to work your balls off to get good at it but it kind of constantly changes and people who are amazing at it 
fall off a cliff with it sometimes and you, there's a, some amazing comics out there who you will never have heard of or who were very popular back in the day and uh, haven't you know haven't been able to write material that's relevant to people um these days it's yeah it's you're constantly chasing it which is great but also i'd love a lie down at some point mm, yeah you've achieved a lot for your 20 Nine years? 29, 30 next year. Yeah. But, oh my God. Terrified so of that as well. Out. Well, no, I say I'm terrified of that, actually. I don't, I've always felt like an old lady in a chair. <laughs> so I'm happy. Yeah, I have a, I have a, a love-hate relationship with, with the fact that I might turn 30 in two years. I'm two like, years. Because I, I, feel, I feel already in my 30s. I don't go out ever. Okay, well, I mean, I, that <laughs> sounds my like he- a heaven love to plants. me. Yes. My mu- so my mum is a gardener and that she's a gardener and painter these days. She was a graphic designer when she was in the working world, but now she's retired. Those are her two main sort of hobbies, and her garden's stunning. Wow. Um, yeah, I love it as well. Yeah, I'd love but I, I, I'm one day. patient like that. Mm. So I think that might come with age. But there's nothing boring about never going out. That actually sounds like the best thing mm-hmm. ever. I think I'm just trying to uh, draw that line between. Because I can do everything from home mostly. That doesn't mean it's okay not to go out. But then this podcast, like, I see people. Yeah, you're out. seeing you now. Yeah, you're out. My goal, I've said this before half facetiously, my goal is to get to a point where I've earned enough money and I've got enough sort of of a following that I, within my house, is a maybe 500 to 1,000-seater theatre. And it... The stage is essentially my bedroom, and what happens is a uh, soundproof wall sort of moves away, and the audience then uh, sort of see that I'm just beyond that wall, and it's just me in bed, and I do uh, maybe an hour and a oh bit my God, of I love that. just reading stuff from my bed. And people have travelled from far and wide. Yeah, I don't have to move, <laughs> and there's a lovely ensuite as well. And maybe someone gives me a bed bath rather than me even moving out of the bed. And then at the end, when I just get bored of them or just don't feel like the show's <laughs> going that well, I just press a button and and the, the wall slides back. Would it back. be like awkwardly slow, like, you know, those toilet doors on trains? Yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> like that. And then, uh, and then I go back to sleep. I love that. I and mean, then the audience just have to leave. That's perfect. Isn't it? I think that's ideal. It will happen. It will happen. Definitely, that will happen. It is going to happen. Yeah. Um, But but I feel like I've um, done the whole, like, overnight success assumption with you. Because, you know, when you've discovered someone, you're like, oh, my God, look at all their stuff. And then then you kind of have to take a moment to do exactly what you just said and be like, that's such hard work over, like, a decade. Mm. You didn't just land on stage at Live at the Apollo. When did you first realise that you wanted to do it? Um, well, it was, uh, there's a gig that I try to erase from memory because, um, it's one of the most horrific nights of my life. I went before ever knowing, I liked stand-up and I watched a few stand-ups, but I, um, it was never my, like, main, my plan was to be an actor. Um, I went to the Manchester Comedy Store with a friend of mine called Ed, and his then girlfriend at the time, Lydia, and a couple of others. And it's a thing called King Gong. I don't know if you've ever seen King Gong. It's where um, uh, people, new comics, get up and they have a go. And there are three cards given to people in the audience. And if all three cards are held up, then they get gonged off. And if you get to five minutes, then you beat the gong. Yeah. And I went to watch, drank a lot of cider, 
and then the compare Mick Ferry, who I've I've worked with quite a lot since, and I'm still always embarrassed to be in his company because he saw me at my absolute worst. <laughs> he was like, "Anyone in the audience want to give it a go?" And I was like, "Yeah, I, I could do this," like, you know. And he was like, "All right." And I got up and did a joke about Madeleine McCann, which wasn't even a joke. And um, then didn't even get gonged off. I just like realised I had nothing left, and the audience didn't like me. And then tripped up as I went. So like just, just the layers of embarrassment sort of grew. And then just sat down back next to my friend Ed. And I saw him yesterday actually, and he still loves to remind me of. And he's actually directed one of my shows, and has been quite integral to my career. But and it's quite useful to have someone like that around. But. Ooh. I'd love to sort of go back and relive the psychology of my life at that time because I think basically what happened there is I was so embarrassed by how awful it had been that I had to sort of prove to myself that I could do it. And I think if that first gig had gone well or like just okay, I don't know whether I would have pursued it so much. I think it was like actually then like within me, I was like, no. I've got to prove those people wrong that mm. were there that I actually I can do this and um yeah an odd an odd psycho- psychological thing there this was I was thinking about this the other week about like certain people who, in your life I don't know whether you have this who like they probably don't even know that, how important they are to to you uh, and I think everyone probably has this sort of a few people like this in their lives but you're just sort of desperate for them to go like ah you did well and there's just been a few people in my life like that and the people in that gig is like all of them there I just wanted them to go like oh we got it we got it wrong he's actually quite good at stand up Mm. Um, there's a lot I think there's so much in that like the it's not like revenge but it's like you want to be be successful in order to prove people wrong and I have that I definitely have that yeah that's like a real driver but like most of the people at that gig will probably if if they remember that they saw me at it or whatever they'll be like oh yeah that was a bit embarrassing yeah great that you're doing well it's a good anecdote leave me alone (laughs) why have you climbed into my house It's not in any way the same, but sometimes with like public speaking, it's like I'm not, I'm like on, I'm performing, I'm not being me really, I'm being like a heightened version of myself. Do you feel like you, you know, you have to have downtime to really save that energy? Yeah, I love, uh, I love a bath and I love sleep. So um, I've noticed that um, in months preceding a heavy tour or something like this. I'm I've, I'm quite tired all of the time, and it's not like any kind of I can. It's not any like health issue. It's just literally like this sort of mild stress in the background where you go, I should be writing. I should be coming up with ideas all the time, and also on show days, I'm basically not a human until the show's done, and then at that point, I'm full of energy and the joys mm-hmm. of spring, and I think it's just. It's just the tides going out, basically. It's just like your body going, you've got loads to do later. And it's quite involved being on stage in terms of just the amount of threads of thought that are going through your head. You've got so, it's such a heightened, it's amazing when you're in flow. And it doesn't happen. I'm getting better at getting in flow and creating this sort of uh, environment where I can be in flow on stage. But, um, normally when you're on stage you've got the thread which is like 
what you're saying like material then thinking what's coming up next mm -hmm. then thinking about like can it relate to anything that has already been said in the room then there's like the thread of like oh what are we gonna have for dinner later and then like there's just loads mm -hmm. of going on in your head and you're actually aware of all of those bits in one go it's quite an amazing wow. sort of experience when you're doing it when you're properly in flow and so i think building up to that over the course of the day there's just normally just a sense of um yeah general sleepiness mm. and the power that you have on the stage in terms of um like i always think oh i i, I wouldn't know how to handle like a heckler for example mm. actually i was heckled once oh by what a happened? really really angry lady right at cheltenham literary festival oh they're all livid there um, aren't they? they my dad was sat next to her and i was like <laughs> oh my god this is all kicking off she was really really angry it wasn't with me actually it was with one of the panelists talking she she said she thought that we thought that we our generation had invented feminism right we were just saying we have role models that are modern feminists yeah. anyway I, I was told you invented feminism that's what i was told <laughs> i'm very disappointed to hear that that's not the case i mean i mean it really was bad and i honestly it took me like two full weeks to get over it yeah <laughs> i was i was wounded and embarrassed <laughs> Which, it's really hard like it is but if hecklers. you're a comedian I feel like no one can win no one can make you feel crap like you're the one that can no, they put can them absolutely. in their place no because you want them to you want everyone to have had a good time throughout and so if somebody's heckling they've got to the point where they're angry enough to sh or to, drunk enough or drunk enough often drunk enough um to shout out and tell you that whatever that they're angry so you cut you might in the moment feel like you've won because you've said a great put down or whatever and often it's not that it's just got to be quick it doesn't have to be that clever normally with put downs because normally if someone's heckled the audience are on your side it's normally yeah it's uh it just it does make you just um just a bit sad so i totally um understand your reaction to that because it's uh, it's a horrible thing when it happens. Mm -hmm. Often it's heckles are not nasty as well. It's just like someone kind of getting involved when they're like going, oh, yeah, I do that, or just drunk people who are just making a bit of noise. Um, That's really interesting because um, I suppose you have to go on stage feeling like kind of invincible in yeah. the moment, but it, it might be afterwards you're like, oh, they said that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember there was an Edinburgh show maybe four years ago. And um, this couple basically stormed out midway through and the guy was just like, it's just shit, isn't it? Give me a ring when you're funny. And then just stormed out. And I did some line. I was sort of, I was taken aback. Everyone was taken aback in the room. And then I was like, he didn't leave a number. And I was pleased with the comeback and then managed to sort of bring the gig around. And actually it meant that the audience were a lot more on my side because I'd had this, they'd sort of sympathised with me. But then afterwards, I was like, yeah, I had a good comeback, but two people walked out of my show who paid for tickets and they were disappointed in what they got. And you totally internalise that. And I remember it now, you know, so it's it definitely affects you, that kind of thing. It's kind of a metaphor for, like, everything, though. With, like, YouTube, you might get 100 likes and two downward uh, thumbs. And yeah, you're yeah. like, who put the downward thumb? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can't remember where I heard this, but about that kind of thing where you look at a roof of tiles and each tile is perfectly in position. And it just takes one tile to just be off and it just ruins the whole thing. Yeah. And that's it. That's how how you feel after uh, that kind of experience. But, you know, it's 
it's not that big a deal, is it, in terms of um, long term? Mm-hmm. Being someone shouting, saying they don't think you're funny or whatever, is definitely preferable to being front line of a war yeah. kind of stuff. So definitely. it's worth seeing it within um, the context of uh, yeah other people's um, problems. Yeah. But yeah, it's not nice. Because I don't think it's fair for people to um, assume that comedians are like don't have feelings and I think that's the same with celebrities people are really mean in general because they're like they'll never read it yeah I think that just a general um, being kinder in uh, in all ways is is definitely worthwhile and there are times like before I was in um, show business or whatever that I I was one of those where I'd get annoyed at somebody on telly or whatever and I'd this is kind of before Twitter so if I'd had Twitter I probably would have been one of the sort of person who would have just been like this is shit probably not adding them in but people see that sort of stuff and these days if I ever have those thoughts I just go uh, I'll have like the instincts like the first thought which is like this is shit and I don't like this performer or whatever and then I'll have like a moment and I'll go they're trying the best it's really hard and um, uh, it's just not for me it's Mm -hmm. not um, it doesn't matter if I don't like it if they enjoy getting something out of doing it and the people watching it enjoy it then that's all that matters Mm -hmm. and it's just that doesn't happen to be my vibe yeah um, but do you feel like you can be really honest and under the guise of comedy? Because all comedians, and, and also with your stuff, I love I love it when you're like really cutting about something. Like, yeah, it's it's like whatever happens on the stage is is stays yeah. on the stage. Yeah, kind of. Well, it doesn't these days. <laughs> People do often remind you of things you've said. And you're like, what have I done? Yes. Well, uh, one definition of like stand up um, that. I've sort of uh, always thought is kind of there's a truth in it is that it's essentially being a stand-up is kind of being honest and rude and that the funniest things that you can say to an audience member when you're doing audience interaction in my experience is the first thing that comes to your head which could be um really horrible like it could just be like I think your outfit's shit or I think what you just said is bullshit or whatever where you're from is a dump or whatever um and you might not even like that might not be what you actually think but like it's that first thought that comes to your head when anyone says something uh you kind of have to cultivate a uh, an environment where you can say that and they love it mm-hmm. like people generally just go like yeah fab like mm-hmm. pull me apart whatever <laughs> um god knows why it's sort of like a i suppose it's like watching a horror film it's sort of like playing out what it would be like to yeah. be attacked yeah. In, a, in a weird way I don't know like the psychology of it's fascinating but then yeah I think the best stand-up is always when someone's being honest about what they actually think about a situation I love as well how through comedy especially at Edinburgh last year I noticed like a lot of people felt they could be really honest about sexuality Mae Martin's show and, I love um, her love Mae Martin Al, Porter uh, Porter yeah oh my god and it was just, and I love your stuff around that as well, where it's just, it's stuff actually that you, of course you could say in normal conversation, of course, but w- with jokes in there, it really hammers a lot of it home. Yeah, it and, just makes it, well, often a joke will be like a comparison. So it'll be like, this is why it's like this, and it makes it easier to understand. Um, whereas you sort of can't do that in normal conversation sometimes sometimes you're trying to explain quite a serious thing I suppose to somebody I still find it very difficult to explain pansexuality to people um, 
like my friends and things like that because it's just, it's just it, it jars with people that um sense that binary sense of gender um and it's not even to do with the binary gender for me it's like or it is a, in part it's more to do with how i just i'm not attracted to people because of their gender that mm. exclusively it's more of a semantics thing using pansexual than anything else but yeah so using stand-up as a as a way of talking about sexuality is quite I think it's quite useful. Like my mum and dad go and watch stand up quite a lot these days because of me doing it, and they they do sort of go like, "Oh, talking about sex again." Like, kind of, but I think that's because they just find it awkward rather than um, um, that they don't learn anything from it or enjoy it necessarily. I think it's um, yeah, it is. I I think it's a great platform for talking about quite complex um, issues. Yeah, definitely. Well, to round off, um, we are at Hodder. Didn't even mention we that are. on the podcast, Hodder, but we are in a, in a really nice meeting room. We're in a lovely meeting room. So, because I've got the hardback of your book, mm. and I've also got the paperback, which is out now. Yes. Um, which has just come out. Yeah. The, the hardback is like a... I love it. it feels it's a like, brick. It feels like a collector's edition. Like Yeah, I love what they did with the... Um... The, the actual hard bit of the hardcover, not the sleeve. There's a drawing on it um, of the oh, parsnip, the pa- parsnip in yeah. like a gold foil. And yeah. I'll always love that. It's but great. I do love the cover of the... Uh, I, what I love about the cover of the paperback is that they wanted a picture of me on the front cover. And um, we'd sort of said no about that loads. So, but we sent this picture and it's just got... Uh, it's one that Matt Crockett, the photographer, took... Um, on a whim, which is just to throw a load of parsnips at my face. And oh, so it's he, not photoshopped on. It's not photoshopped on. It's oh, actually God, him throwing parsnips at me. And um, <laughs> I just love how like weird it is. How was it writing it? Like, do you know what? Really fun. I remember talking to Izzy Sooty about writing books because she, um, I think she's written a couple now. Uh, and she said that like there'd be times when you go and do gigs and um, you'd come back to writing it and it'd be like, sort of catching up with an old friend because you'd got just um, so uh, attached to the thing. I, yeah, I really enjoyed writing it and also doing all the drawings and everything. It's, as always, like you have to abandon a thing after a while. You constantly, like, I'm rereading it, kind of, oh, that could be better. And like, you know, mm. but you'll, it'll never be finished if if you keep doing that. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, it's so your voice. And actually when I, picked up the book um the guys here were like you have to listen to the audiobook okay because... yeah the audiobooks that was weird as well doing the audiobooks just basically spend a few days in a little box saying the, your own words it's, it's just a very peculiar experience but yeah people really liked the audiobook i've not actually listened to the audiobook myself because that seems like another level of madness mm. But yeah, it's a the whole thing is like weird. Mark Watson described it perfectly with the book. It's like there's all the like writing of it and the stress of it, and yeah, you spend like months or years like really finessing this thing, and then you kind of hand it off, and then there's a bit of a party, and then you go past bookshops, and sometimes it's in there, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Actually, that is totally the process of writing it now. I'm, I'm so glad it exists in the world, but it's uh, you do kind of go, ah, well, what's next now then? It's, yeah. you, you don't, you kind of forget that you're a published author quite quickly mm. and it's what's next. Oh, well, it's an amazing book and you should be really proud of it. Bless you. It's really, really great. Mm-hmm.